Hello, and welcome to episode 68 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. This is just going to be a quick off-the-cuff apiary update, because that's really what I want to tell you about. And then the last bit of some things I wrote down for the honey episode from last time. So it's going to be kind of going to be a lame part two, (laughs) because as I told you, honey, even though selling honey has been the mechanism that I saved up the money to buy more bee equipment and to buy my extractor and to buy the various things that uh, I play with in my bee yard, still it's not my favorite thing. But one of one of the several things I thought of after I closed the episode last time is about extractors. They are an expensive piece of equipment. And if you don't have, I mean, if you have less than six hives or less than five hives, you might not need one. You Ideally, your bee club has one to rent or to borrow. Our bee club does. Most every club I know has one. In fact, the McDowell Club, if I'm not mistaken, if you're a member, they I think they have a whole honey house that you can rent to extract your honey. So definitely check with your bee club about what they have. The other option is for several bee friends to go in and get an extractor. Obviously, this means you need to know and trust these people because the extractor is going to live at somebody's house and you're going to have to go get it and exchange it and have it have people that are going to reliably keep it clean and in good working order. So there are several ways you that buying an extractor may be the um, largest expense that you don't have to make. One of the other ways that of getting honey out that's really easy, requires no extractor, and is a whole specialty market of it of its own, is when you use the frames that have no foundation, they draw honeycomb that once it's full of honey is absolutely perfect for cut comb honey. And you can just slice it off the frame, cut it up, put it in some type of cut comb container. Now anytime you include wax in your honey, Anytime you include wax in your honey, of course, that has to be wax that has not been exposed to any treatments that are not labeled for being okay for honey supers. Wax, as you know, is uh, is kind of, I guess you would describe it as fat-based. There's a real word for it. Can't think of it right now. Because of that, it's going to absorb a lot of toxins that the honey doesn't as much. So that's one reason why you want to be very careful with any wax that you put in cut comb. Obviously, it needs to be the very white wax that has not been used for brood. Otherwise, you're going to have some chewy stuff in there that you're not going to enjoy. (laughs) Or you might enjoy. I mean, people in other places might enjoy it. The cut comb, the other thing you need to remember is it's very possible, maybe even likely, that somewhere in that wax are some wax moth eggs and possibly small hive beetle eggs, depending on where you are. So to eliminate those from emerging in your nice cut comb honey, you want to put it in the freezer before you uh, store it in any way. And so of a few days in a deep freeze, be sure to wrap it up tight because it will absorb any odors in your freezer. So you can either, you know, go ahead and put it in whatever container you're going to put it in and then freeze it. Or if you're going to freeze the whole thing, I would say, you know, wrap it very well in um, in plastic or freezer wrap or something to keep it from picking up the freezer taste. Because I made the mistake of pulling out a frame, beautiful frame of what I was going to cut comb and I just stuck it in the freezer <laughs> and then, you know, the, as soon as we tasted it, we were like, ew, what is wrong with this? And I realized it's kind of freezer taste. So the takeaway on that is don't rush out and purchase an extractor until you're real sure you're going to need one. There are many other ways. And if you do some Google searches on extracting honey without an extractor, you will see all the videos that you need to see to figure out something to try. 
Now, when you are extracting, I have figured out a few tips. If you're using an extractor in particular, and you're doing quite a few supers, you want to set yourself up kind of a, an assembly line that makes sense. And what I've found in my shop is, so I set up a left to right progression. So I have something to set the full supers on. And again, remember, when you pull these supers off or boxes, you know, they're they're probably going to drip because you're going to break honey cells that might be between the frames. So they're probably going to be drippy. I like to set them on something that is going to catch those drips to keep it off of my clean drop cloth that's on the concrete floor. So you set your supers to extract in a stack, say on the far left. Then you've got to take those out of the boxes, take the frames out of the boxes and uncap them. <laughs> Last podcast, I kept calling it an extracting knife. I don't know what was going on with my brain, but an uncapping knife. <laughs> an uncapping knife, or as I call it, it's an extracting knife. That is something that people use, especially if you have the big fat honeycomb, like if you run nine frames in a 10 frame box or seven frames in an eight frame box. If they've got the big fat shoulders on them, the uncapping knife will take it all off. I personally use a capping scratcher, and that's one of the tight pronged metal things. It just scratches the capping wax. It basically makes little tiny slices in the capping wax. I don't know. I've, I've found this to be very handy. In the past, up until last year, I didn't have an uncapping tank or anything like that. The professionals have a tank that you slice off the tops of the, the cappings on the honey. It has a lot of honey on there, and there's a lot of good wax. The best wax is on there. In the commercial setting or serious hobbyist setting, it falls into as, um, a screen, kind of like a giant colander. And so the honey drains out and that's recaptured. And then you've got your nice, beautiful cappings wax. I didn't have anything like that. So the there were two f problems with, with me with the uncapping knife. And the reason I don't, I mean, I have one, but I don't use it. I don't use the heated, I never intended to use the heated uncapping knife just because of kind of scorching the honey if, if it's not used very carefully. I just didn't want to have to worry about that and never needed one. Now, used properly, I don't think it scorches the honey, but I just don't, I don't use one, so I don't really know how to use one. The uncapping knife that's just a knife, it's just a big mess. It's also very sharp, so watch out for those. With my frames, because I almost always run eight frames in an eight frame box, my honey frames don't have those big fat shoulders, so it's almost impossible to get the entire frame, all the cappings off with the knife because of the way the frame is made. And at the time, I didn't have a way to capture that honey that I was slicing off, so it was a big, it was a big waste. I mean, it would just all went in this uh, gloppy bucket full of cappings and honey, and I would end up feeding it back to the bees. Back when I was not doing so many mating nukes, now I'm very cautious about that because any honey you put outside attracts robbers. And depending on the season, it can create robbing in your yard. It could definitely create robbing in my mating yard. So I just don't do that anymore. But I lucked out. And this is a tip that I think is worth passing on. A friend of mine whose son is in the restaurant business turned me on to the bus trays. They're heavy-duty plastic. They're what the waiter buses your table into or someone buses your table into at a restaurant back when we all went to restaurants. <laughs> Better yet, there is an insert in those that's like a drainer. It has small holes in it. And I don't know if that was used for, I don't really know what they're used for in a restaurant, maybe draining vegetables or maybe just soppy bus trays and then it drains the liquid off. 
not sure what it's used for, but they fit together beautifully and they make a fabulous uncapping tray. The, the frames do fit in there, so you can set them there while they're waiting to go into the extractor. So on this assembly line, and I'll put a picture up on the show notes of the uh, bus tray. It might not be right away. It may be on Patreon at some future point. Anyway, it's a, a bus tray with a, a strainer tray inside of it. These things are very cheap at restaurant supply stores. And my friend picked me up some and brought them to me. I have used them for all kinds of things in bees because the frames will fit in those trays completely, sit all the way down in them. So in that left to right assembly line gig that I was telling you about, you can take the frame out of the super I put it or kind of stand it on end in one of those draining bus trays. I scratch the cappings on it and then I move it over to the next straining bus tray to sit and wait till the extractor is clear. So my extractor, I think it holds, I think it might hold six or eight frames. I can't even remember. So what happens is to kind of keep the flow going. I like to have the next batch of frames, you know, the really drippy ones, because now you've scratched the cappings off. I like to have them ready to go into the extractor. So I can, once the ones that are in the extractor are done, I pull them out, again, moving them to the right. They're still wet to some extent. Hopefully you've gotten most of the honey out of them, but they're still drippy. So I have another stack of boxes that are going to be to receive the wet frames. Again, you need a tray or plastic or something underneath those to catch the, the drips. You're getting now, if you haven't done this, just how messy it is and why. I mean, I was going to make a joke. And I, if you haven't seen, if you didn't watch the show, the TV show, Dexter, which was about a serial killer. But anyway, <laughs> this is terrible. Anyway, Dexter, before he would kill somebody, would set up a kill room. <laughs> and I joke that my... Honey extraction room looks like a Dexter kill room because it's just coated in um, drop cloth plastic. It's coated in the rollout paper that construction workers and painters use to keep from tracking uh, construction dust and paint around. I get it at Lowe's. I think it's uh, it's like kind of like felt paper, but it's just a thick absorbent paper. I use that. I use broken down large cardboard boxes to make kind of like um, entry and exit maps to the kill room area, <laughs> the honey extraction room area. It does help to have it all planned out before you start, uncap before you start doing any of that. Really think your way through your flow. It goes from the stack to the uncapping area to the waiting area, drain and it's draining, and then into the extractor runs through the extractor and then the wet empty frames are then moved in the wet stack and as I talked about last week those boxes I end up setting on top of a hive sealed very carefully so there's an upper entrance I put screen on it or or tape on it or something because you don't want robber bees getting in there because the smell of a wet super with honeycomb will drive your bees crazy. And so don't attract them to that. They will, if you put them over the inner cover, the bees in there will go up there, they will lick everything dry. And then it would, they, after once they have licked it completely dry, and then you've gotten them back out, which you can do either with a, a one of the clearer boards, like we talked about, um, or if it's a chilly night and they all go down into the lower boxes to cluster, then you can just take off that upper box and put their lid back on. So anyway, that's the flow that I have in my extracting area. Then when you've extracted all the honey, then you've got a giant mess to clean up. 
I started using the felt paper because I was just appalled at all the plastic I was using and didn't like putting that into the waste system. You know, just so much trash. So I really switched over a lot to the washable drop cloths that I mentioned that I got from Lowe's that are canvas on one side and plastic on the back. They're washable. If you're lucky and have a couple of days of hard rain, you can just lay them out in the yard, let the rain wash them clean, and then hang them on line. You'll probably get bees <laughs> coming because they'll still smell the honey on them. I use those and I use a lot of cardboard that was destined for recycling anyway. And then the, uh, the felt like paper. So it's a little more paper-based rather than plastic-based. You will figure it out. You will figure out what worked for you. You will figure out whether you're going to have a dedicated space. I have a dedicated, mostly dedicated space, but it, what that space is, it's a room in my workshop that is a clean area. And by that, you know, I don't bring gross bee stuff in there to clean up. I definitely don't let any of the dogs in there because honey attracts. If you've got any dog or cat hair anywhere, it is going to attract. So, I mean, I, I change clothes before I do my honey because I just do not ever want to open my honey and find a dog hair. So I have a dedicated room that the dogs are not allowed in, into. It's actually in the workshop, so they can't even get to the whole the whole workshop, which is good because they would be just eating the bits of wax that fall on the floor. They would be eating everything because that's how dachshunds are like little low-slung vacuums that just move around the house. I had a big farm dog one time that, uh, she was very funny. I didn't really realize what was happening, but at the time I at the time, I was less careful than I am now. And so if I if I had burr comb that was in a hive and I'd scraped off, I'd just wad it up you know, like a little ball and throw it outside the bee yard, which was a bad thing to do because that attracts critters to your yard. And I'm more careful these days. But my old farm dog, she would eat all that stuff. And she loved it. She loved everything. And that's probably why I didn't have any critter problems because there was nothing left outside the bee yard because she was just moving around cleaning up after me. Oh, the other funny thing that happened one time is I had pulled a frame of drone brood. And at this time I was experimenting with pulling frames of drone brood for to reduce mite numbers. So I had this frame of drone brood. It was almost completely capped. And I was going to take it and put it in the freezer, which of course kills the brood. Then you can put it on a strong colony and they will clean it all out. The other option is to is to take it and and let your chickens clean it out because if they ever start pecking it and realize that there's there's grubs in there they will peck it clean for you and that's another thing that I've done is just in the foundation free frames that they uh, big hive will almost always draw in drone frame if you don't put it in the right place or if you put it on the sides intending for them to draw it in uh, drone comb then again the super easiness of the foundation free frames is you can just slice it out of there and give it to the chickens now that wastes all that wax and now that I'm collecting wax I feel very differently about that the story I was going to tell you is I had this frame of uh, mostly capped drone brood and I set it on a work table in my little it's kind of like a little pole barn area until I could get around it taking it to the freezer and when I walked back up to that area we call it the overhang it's a long story but it's kind of like a pole barn area a little Carolina wren had discovered this entire frame of of larva and it was picking out the grubs I guess they're grubs larva I'll have to look that up it was picking out the larva and flying to its nest which was also in the pole barn area so and it would pick a grub fly to its nest, pick a bar, and it was only about 10 foot apart. So those were probably the best fed little Carolina wrens. So I left it there. And by morning, every open cell was empty. It had cleaned out that entire thing. And then the cap cells, I don't remember what I did with them. I may have frozen them or I may have given them to the chickens, depending on how much time or what my thoughts were that day. So many things love bee, grubs, larvae, obviously, as that that's what the bears are trying to get. You know, that's why I'm 
the hives unfortunately just attract bears if you're in a black bear area and god forbid if you're up in a grizzly area y'all have a whole different set of problems but in the black bear area they can do they can actually destroy your apiary not just literally not just all the boxes and the bees but if they've ever gotten past your electric fence or i should say if you didn't have god forbid an electric fence in this area in western north carolina or in the southern appalachians where there's lots of bears western north carolina is overrun with black bears if you are in this area even in town and maybe especially in town i think y'all have more bears than we do if they ever get in your hives and eat a bunch of bee grubs and honey I'm really going to be embarrassed if they're not grubs because I've called them grubs throughout this whole podcast, but y'all are just going to have to give me some some leeway here <laughs> to make mistakes. And you're the you guys are the best and sweetest listeners. There's many times I've made a mistake and corrected it later and listener will write and say, "Hey, don't worry about it. You know, we're just following along. You're just wonderful." And I appreciate every single one of you. Anyway, if a bear gets a great meal out of your beehives, you can probably never keep hives in that spot again. Because once they realize there's food in there that's delicious and they love, then the electric fence will not keep them out. The only time the electric fence, I mean, how it works is to keep them from ever getting in there. So if they touch their nose to the electric fence, which is the only part that it's going to affect, they touch their nose as they walk up to the fence and they don't like that and they run off and they don't get in your hives, hopefully, fingers crossed. But if they ever get through that fence or if you didn't have a fence and they get a good meal, then you cannot keep them out with those tiny little electric wires and you probably will have to relocate your apiary somewhere else. This is a constant terror of mine (laughs) because I would be so sad to not be able to have bees here at the farm for at least a couple few years until that that bee, I mean, <laughs> that bear either passed on or moved on. One of my beekeeping friends who had a, a lot of hives had a catastrophic bear attack recently. It, this yard was protected, not just with... Uh, not just with electric wire, but he even had little motion detectors that would ring in his house. I don't know what went wrong with that system, but apparently they have some neighbors that are feeding the bears, really unfortunate, and then those bears that are being fed, hanging around, get hungry, and they uh, destroyed this bee yard. It is not was not right beside his house so I don't know if the motion detector system didn't go off or whatever but they destroyed it I think they ran off the bears tried to salvage what was left and they came left back and got the rest and so you can't have a bee yard in that spot uh, for several years at least and that's really unfortunate and this was a long long sad story to tell you please don't mess around if you've got if you don't have a fence and you're in a known black bear area or just a potential black bear area, please try your electric fence to save your bee yard. And if you have an electric fence, then keep your weeds whacked and test it now and then. I do have an electric fence tester. Sometimes if I'm at an out yard and don't have the tester, I do it the old fashioned way, which is to touch it with your hand. But I <laughs> I touch it with my bee suit, which is between me and my hand. And you can still feel the zap, but not nearly as bad because I, I hate to touch the electric fence. And there was one day I was bending over. <laughs> and the thing about electric fences is you need to have your hives inside that electric fence more than a bear's arm long. (laughs) So bears have fairly long arms and so they need to be several feet inside the electric fence so that the bear can't reach in and, and, and get it and again get the taste and then it's all over. 
So, I'm not exactly sure how I got from honey extraction to bears, but in a way, it makes sense. This is That's a kind of catastrophic extraction of your bee yard that I definitely don't want to happen to you. Oh, but I was telling you about, I was out working the bees, and it was a hive that I had put probably too close to the electric fence. And when I was bending over, I was backing up to the electric fence, and I, <laughs> I jumped up like, oh my gosh, they're stinging me on the rear. But it wasn't. It was the fence. Different kind of sting. That did remind me that my hive was a little too close to the fence, and I pushed it in a little bit a little bit so I think that might be most everything I have to say about extracting honey there's a gazillion videos and articles online your bee club may have instructions your state apiary unit probably has instructions on what are the standards to keep honey clean so that it can be sold I think there are some states at least I've heard of it, at least they have been for a while, where the extraction had to be done in order to be legit, had to be done in a certified kitchen. And that is just, that's really unfortunate and and not realistic. And I believe I read that one state, they uh, passed that regulation, someone passed it, and then the beekeepers and the apiary inspector, you know, went to get it overturned. And basically their entire grounds for getting it overturned was, has there ever been a food safety incident with honey in our state? And their answer was no. And so they, they did manage to overturn it. But that's something uh, that would be unfortunate. I think there was a brush with that when I was in Arkansas, that when they were doing a whole cottage food law, which was a good thing, it meant that certain things like at the farmer's market could be prepared in a home kitchen versus the things that had to be in a certified kitchen. And for a while, honey was involved, but I believe the the beekeeping community got involved, got involved in that county and got that just taken out so that the usual fairly laid back honey regulations, if any, were maintained. And that is something to keep in mind when you buy honey, is that in most states, you are relying on that beekeeper to have extracted it clean <laughs> to not have licked their fingers while they were extracting and to not have, you know, had their dog or cat in there with them. So you definitely want get a feel for your beekeeper when you think about think about the honey. I've had lots of people tell me they're like, oh, I figure that honey will just kill anything that's in there. And to some extent, that's true. But still, anything I eat, I'd like to know that it was prepared in a clean area for sure. So I think that wraps it up about honey. I wish you the best. Honey's not my main priority. I do enjoy the income stream now that the bees have paid off all their all their mortgages <laughs> with their honey. Thank goodness that was paid off before this year because as I said last time, at my particular elevation, the honey prospects look very, very dim. I feel like I'm going to be lucky to have enough just for my home and my family who are all addicted to this honey and won't I, I even told them, my mother-in-law, who's in Texas, and I, I ship her honey, and she loves it. And when I had told her that there might not be honey this year, she's like 94. She got very upset, was just very upset about that she might not get any honey. And I said, well, don't worry. You know, uh, if I can't get it, I'll buy it from other beekeepers in my area who are just in a better spot, a low, lower elevation that didn't get that late heart freeze that we got that messed up so much. And maybe didn't get all the rain that we got that messed up what was left after the hard freeze. And she was, that was just not going to suit her. She just did not feel like even honey from the next valley over was going to be the same. And that's the beautiful part about when you get your honey customers that are so hooked on your honey that they, uh, that they 
well, they'll, they'll hoard it. You have to watch them. <laughs> you have to limit it. It's like the cleaning products at the grocery store these days, you know, limit to. My mother-in-law is now relieved because I told her, I'm like, okay, you know, I between all my hives, I will get enough to keep the family stocked up. And she's she's very relieved at that. Well, now I'll tell you about the fun, well, some fun part. But the part that I wanted to tell you about today, which was just what's going on in the apiary at Five Apples. I won't make this too long, or I'll try not to, since I'm toward the end of this section. Finally, the bees fully turned around, really grabbed a gear, as I've heard it said, and looked beautiful. If we can just get a flow... Um, We tend to have a late summer flow here in the mountains. And if we can just get that flow, then I will feel good about them going into fall. I mean, I'll I'll feel good about them after I do mic counts, (laughs) that is. Um, On that topic, I'm pretty much going through my list of the hives, making sure that I know how old that queen is. And that lets me know, and I can look in the records, about how recently they had a brood break. If you do brood breaks on your hives every year, you will find your mite counts are just much lower. Now, depending on your bees and how um, how mite resistant they are, how hygienic they are, um, it may or may not be low enough to keep you from using treatments or other methods. But the brood break sets the mites back. If you do it completely, meaning that they start from an egg and go all the way to a mated queen, that means there's almost a month with no eggs laid no fresh brood being sealed. And then the um, clincher technique, if the population of the bees is big enough, the clincher technique i found is that first frame of capped brood. If you cull that, if you take it out, stick it in the freezer. Now, yes, you've killed that whole frame of capped brood. But also remember, in all that broodless time, the mites could do nothing but ride around on the bees And now they are causing damage when they're riding around on the bees, but they're not reproducing. And so that first frame of brood, sadly, every mite who's been just holding it in, their reproductive urge, will dive into those cells right before they're capped. And so that means that first frame of capped brood after a full brood break is going to have most of the mites in the hive. Now, I have heard it said, and I've seen no actual proof, but I've heard it said that first little patch of capped brood, that the mites dive in there so hard that it it kills the brood and that kills the mite. I don't know how much I would rely on that, but that's an interesting thing. I I hope someone will do some research on that because that's an interesting idea. But if you pull that frame, now, here's where my little medium frames are nice because a lot of times there will be one side that's partially capped and that might be the frame that I pull out, thinking that there are a lot of mites, especially in the late summer, under those cappings. Now, if I ever get myself organized, it would be pretty interesting to uncap those, you know, take it out of the hive, shake all the bees off, uncap those and see, see if that's true, you know, see if they really are, you know, more mites in there. On that topic, I know I've said it before, but for beginners, I want to say it again. You know, many times when you take boxes apart, you tear or even take frames out of a box, you will tear cells apart. Often those are drone cells that the bees have put between the frames, between the boxes, because if you use foundation, they don't have a lot of uh, drone comb. And that's an opportunity. Anytime you open up cells for whatever reason, accidentally or on purpose, to see those white larvae that are... um, just about to to morph into what looks like a undercooked bee. Definitely look and see if you see any mite. People will tell you that, oh, I I can see mites on my adult bees. And I just am like, whatever. (laughs) Because yes, if you see mites on an adult bee, 
if you see a mite on an adult bee and then you look around and you see another mite on an adult bee, that hive has real problems. Because I will tell you, I haven't seen a mite on an adult bee. And I, I look, I, I love to look at the bees. So I look at my brood frames pretty closely. I haven't seen a mite on an adult bee in I don't know how long. That does not mean I don't have mites. Now I do work very hard to keep them at very low levels, but it is hard to see a mite on a bee. And if you are seeing mites on bees, that hive is probably just about to be overtopped by mites. And you need to do a mite count and do something, in my opinion. When you break apart cells that have the white larva in them, <laughs> or grubs, as opposed, uh, uh, according to this podcast earlier, but anyway, the white larva in them, then the mites are very easy to see. They stand out like a fleck of something very dark brown on a white sheet of paper. It's very easy to see. And so if you break apart cells, if you see a mite, then you need to keep an eye on what's going on in your hive and maybe do go ahead and do a mite count. If you see a lot of mites, which I've had people say to me, oh yeah, I broke apart a bunch of drone brood and it, there was a ton of mites in there. I would flip out if I saw that because that would be an absolute horror to me and I would take uh, drastic action for me because I've just never seen mite levels in my hives at that level. I would be horrified. So keep an eye on whenever you break apart cells accidentally. It's a great time to look at those larvae carefully and see if you see any mites. Hate to start bringing up the mite thing, but we're getting into late summer and this is very shortly here are when the hives will start potentially getting into trouble with mites, especially if you haven't done anything. You will, you know, want to, if you haven't done your mite counts, you're entering the window where there's no turning back and you probably want to, in my opinion, do them so that you'll know which hives are doing well, which hives are managing their mites and which hives are not. Pretty much the ones that are not managing their mites that are allowing their mite counts to get high, you want to mark those as bees that you don't want those genetics. And through whichever means you choose, you want to weed those genetics out of your yard, in my opinion. Um, and then the ones that are managing their mites very well, you want to mark those as, hey, I want more of that genetic line. And whether that means where you got those bees from, the, the breeder that you got that queen from, or if that's just a line in your yard that you want to keep re, you know reproducing and emphasizing, then those are those are your keepers and you want to, to take good care of them because not so long here now that we've passed the summer solstice, and that's just amazing to me in beekeeping that in the height of the longest days of the year, as this light starts getting shorter, which it you know does a, a few days after the solstice, even if it's a tiny bit shorter every day, the bees shift in their their mindset, if you will. <laughs> when the, As those days begin to get shorter, the bees are shifting into prepare for winter mode. So as the days have been getting longer, all the way from, you know, January, and the later, the later it gets, as the days are getting longer, the bees want to get bigger, bigger, bigger. They're raising lots of brood, lots of brood, lots of brood. Then you get to summer solstice, and very gradually that begins to change in the opposite direction. Now this is more dramatic if you have a line of bees that are re more responsive to this. If you have the Carniolan lines or the, the Russian lines from what I understand, I have not worked with Russians, but definitely the Carniolan lines, you will start to see them react to the light getting shorter and react to the nectar getting less if that's, if that's uh, a situation in your area. 
I'll talk more about that later because I ran into trouble with that a few years ago. I love that my carniolans, that are my mostly carniolan mutts, I love that they are responsive to the nectar flows, but it also creates some things that you have to watch out for. And if somebody will remind me, I'll talk about that in a future podcast. Okay, I'll wrap that up here. I still have lots I want to tell you because there are lots go- going on in my yard. It's a hodgepodge as usual of honey hives here and there, mating nukes going on over here. And that's a whole problem within itself. Uh, having both of those on the same farm. Hives that I've grown up from queens that I've made this year and started them off with a little starter nuke. I'm growing those up to overwinter. Haven't gotten into raising any bees that might overwinter in the shed yet. Still a little bit early, but I'll start that preparation process uh, pretty soon here. And if you don't know what that's about, I've been experimenting with overwintering pretty tiny nukes as free-flying nukes inside an unheated shed. And I'll say more about that. That's just a kind of weird thing I've been trying, but I've been having good luck with it, so I may do more of that. Also, this winter, I'm going to try more of overwintering larger nukes, really, I guess you call it a double nuke, outside, uh, ganged up, and then insulated. And that's a whole nother way of overwintering. And I kind of like to compare how, how those how those do compared to the littler nukes um, in the shed. So I'll wrap this up here. I want to thank each and every one of you for being such loyal listeners and for being such forgiving listeners and for not minding if I call something the wrong name or if I'm stumbling around or if I say the same thing 10 times or tell you I'm going to tell you something and then don't tell you. Um, You're just lovely, lovely people who I appreciate. Not getting to spend a lot of time with my bee friends this year has made me kind of bee friend lonely in in one sense. And thinking of all you guys working your bees helps with that. I want to just send thoughts out to everybody who is dealing with stress. I don't know that I've ever seen a more stressful time uh, in in my overall community and in my region and in my country. It is a stressful time and I just want you all to be gentle and kind to yourselves and give yourself room because... For most of us alive listening to this, this is this is our first pandemic, our first real serious pandemic. And uh, it causes a background layer of stress that even if there's nothing actively happening, thank God, in your home or, or your neighborhood or even your community, still that background stress, it, it weighs on us. And I just want to send out love and hugs to all of you and take care of yourself and, and those you love. Enjoy your bees. They are a beautiful a beautiful thing you're doing in this world. Okay, have a great week. I'll talk to you soon.